Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Today we have our wonderful guest co-host, Anu Mandapati. Um, she is joining us from Austin, Texas. Uh, Anu Mandapati is an award-winning global diversity, equity, and inclusion leader and an executive team and well-being coach with 20 plus years of leadership, organizational development, and DEI experience. Anu specializes in working with executives who want to develop their leadership teams, relationships, and well-being while expanding as an inclusive, equitable leader. Her leadership tips, tools, and strategies have been featured in various publications, including Forbes, Fortune, HR Advisor, Inc., and Money. Uh, and now I'd like to open the floor up to Anu to tell us a little bit about herself on maybe something that is not in her official bio. Thank you, Anu. So something that's not in my official bio is so I live in Austin, Texas, and we love food. Um, and so I actually run a little uh, a fun uh a foodie meetup. So we we've been kind of, you know, taking a little break during uh, during COVID, but it's starting back up again. So I'm excited for our food adventures that are coming up. That's awesome. Anu, I'll have to keep that in mind. I love food. I can eat like that's what I do. I research very heavily before I travel. And we were discussing before I love Austin. So I have to try and get connected if I'm ever in the Austin area. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Well, you know, we have such a great um, show, you know, just questions and things uh, to dive in today. So let's just hop right on in um, and start off talking about, you know, um, biases that arise in leadership, executive coaching engagements, um, and the idea of something that you had mentioned, um, similarity bias. Can you talk us talk to us about that and, and we can explore that topic a little bit further? Absolutely. So when we're talking about leadership executive coaching engagement, so these are engagements that are sponsored by the organization. So we have leaders coming in and sharing, you know, what what this this client's strengths as well as their areas for development are. So the coach is very much aware of, you know, where to start. The challenge sometimes that can come up is whose definition of a leader is this? Are we looking at who we are used to promoting and are those promoting promotion and hiring decisions based off of, you know, people who look like us, think like us, speak like us, um, act like us, et cetera? Or is it really looking at specific leadership competencies for the organization? So I think we really have to be careful when we, you know, when, when we put people forward in leadership and executive coaching engagements to really look at, you know, what, what are these areas for development and is there any bias that's coming in because of our personal experiences or how we, you know, we want leaders to look in the organization. Sometimes there are, um, you know, sometimes people look at there's one leader and you want, you know, and we, we kind of want everyone to be like that. But do we really? Because all that does is create a whole bunch of mini me's and, and one leader. And so we really want to make sure that we're valuing each of the contributions that that every person has. And so we really want to be careful when we are putting people forward for leadership and executive coaching engagements to really look at what are their strengths? How do we really leverage it? And any of those areas for development, how do we make sure that they are as bias free as possible? Perfect. Thank you so much, Anu. Anam, are you... Yes, um, 
Tell us a little bit about the Learn, Amplify, Sustain model. What is this and why is it so important? Sure. So the Learn, Amplify, Sustain model is something that I have used in you know, any time that I've been designing any type of learning experiences for organizations. Much of the time, you know, we, we all go through, you know, any type of learning experience, let's say a workshop, and it's one and done, it will be out of sight, out of mind. We really need to ensure that there is, you know, some form of amplification of that message. So how do we actually ingrain, embed that into our day-to-day -day practices? So, for example, if we are wanting our organization to go through learning experiences around inclusive behaviors, there's that learning component. And then the amplification is, you know, one example of it could be just practicing it. So in that workshop, not just having a learning experience, but how do we actually, you know, let's do some breakouts. How do we actually help people to practice and amplify that learning? So then they know, what am I doing really well? Where am I struggling? You know, what, what's my action plan so people can hold me accountable? We want to make sure to amplify the learning. And a lot of that actually sometimes is if you think about most people in most roles, you're going to be spending the most amount of time with your teams. So that's actually a wonderful opportunity to really be able to connect with your teammates, let them know where you're doing really well. What am I being you know, challenged in, in the specific area? And here's where I want your support. So in those day-to-day -day practices in team interactions, you're going to be able to get that live feedback. And that's a great way to amplify any of that learning and then sustaining the learning three months out, six months out, a year out. What is the organization going to do to make you know, the learning stick? Because otherwise, especially when we talk about inclusion or anything related to DEI, it is out of sight, out of mind because everyone gets busy. You go back into your day-to-day. -day. So anything that we can do to make sure that we're amplifying, sustaining any type of learning to embed and ingrain that into day-to-day -day practices, that those are that's really where we see the organizational shift. That's where we have the most impact. So that's why I think that's super important to do. You know, I love that, Anu. And, you know, one thing I, I feel like we're consistently hearing um, and why here at NWC it's so important for us to focus on impact and not activity um, is that, you know, yeah, the training was great, but what's next? You know, how do I take this and move forward? You know, um, I have so many questions. I need, you know, I need a little bit more. So I think that that model that you've outlined is um, so crucial and is, is very, very helpful. Um, and kind of, you know, you touched on the team level. So kind of taking that and, 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 and leading into this next question, you know, what should we be doing at the individual and team level to create more inclusivity and shift organizational, organizational culture? And um, also, um, how can we begin to tackle this at the team level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when, when I think about any cultural change, cultural change to happen at the organizational level, I mean, that could be a massive shift that we're trying to turn around, depending especially on the number of people. So change happens at the individual level, the interpersonal level, the team level, and the organizational level. So if we think about as individuals, you know, we, we want to make sure that we are clear as we go through some form of learning experience, and, and especially when it comes to, to DEI, first, how is this actually tied to organizational values? So that way it makes really sense, it makes sense to me that DEI isn't off to the side, but it's actually connected to who we are and, and as an organization. So as an individual, um, it's really important for, for people to think about, you know, what, what are my strengths? What can I leverage? Then what are my personal areas for development? How do I get support around that? 
what does that accountability piece look like as well? And, you know, just what we just talked about with the learn, amplify, sustain model, you know, going in there and, and you know, learning new uh, behaviors, practicing new skills. If we're doing that at the individual level as adult learners, it's really about application and it's about our interactions with other people to make that learning stick. So very much moving that to that interpersonal level. So Courtney, you and I can talk about here's where I'm doing really well. Here's where I need support again, you know, and then for, you know, for you and I to provide each other feedback. And, and just as what, you know, was shared um, just a minute ago of, where do most people spend their time? They're spending most of their time at that team level. And that team level is just rich with opportunities for, you know, what are we committing to at the team level? So all of us are team members showing up and this is the team culture we want to co-create. And you know, what, what happens if we're not demonstrating that? What does that look like? So maybe on our team, it's really about, you know, one of our challenges is making sure that everyone's voice is heard. So as a team, what are we all going to do when maybe someone's not speaking up? How do we, how do we invite them into that conversation? Um, so you've got your, your team commitments to one another and how we all show up and how we also share that feedback to each other. And also at that team level, if I'm bringing in my individual commitments and what I'm struggling in or what I need support, in, just in day-to-day -day behavior, just day-to-day -day practices, you're going to be able to see, okay, well, Anu, you know, you said that you wanted to work on this and here's how, you know, what you did landed for me. And so you can get that instant feedback and it's a, it's a culture that we're all in this together. So, um, you know, we, we can all move forward together. The more teams that actually come together to have these types of conversations, that's actually how you're going to have that organizational shift. Organization-wide, there might be, you know, we can all say here are our values and here's our leadership competencies and how we want people to, you know, to be. Um, but that practice of it, you know, taking that theoretical piece to actually something tangible, that's going to happen at that team level. I love that. It, it makes me think, I know one thing that we really push our community agreements and I feel like that kind of is um, infusing that. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue into our next question. Uh, speaking on cultural and just adding to that, what does it mean to be culture carriers versus culture co-creators? Absolutely. So you'll hear you'll hear that phrase culture carriers, um, you know, sometimes especially from from our you know HR friends. And one of the things that I think about is as a culture carrier, someone is setting the culture and then we're all carrying it. So that to me isn't the best way um, to, to shift culture and to really get people engaged. It's very much about being culture co-creators. If we're all responsible, we've got shared responsibility, we've got skin in the game to really ensure that we are all in this together, creating that culture. So I know that my actions matter. I know that your actions matter. So it's not someone setting that culture and we have, you know, we follow. It's about, well, you know what? My actions are going to matter. So I'm going to want to do things differently because we all have that shared responsibility, especially when it comes to DEI. It's not a chief diversity officer's responsibility or a CEO or a chief human resources officer. It's all of ours. So as an organization, how do we all co-create that culture to move forward together? So that way we've all got skin in the game. We've all got that shared responsibility. I love that. Um, I love that term culture co-creators. Like I'm going to just adopt that because I think it's <laughs> fantastic. And I think it, it it also because it can be very heavy. And I think sometimes um, for those that are in that role, just um, something that can be, you know, very 
heavy for them to carry by themselves. So to know that it's like something that's being created um, collaboratively um, really places that on everyone as it should and um, probably promotes much more effective results because you're getting all these different perspectives, lenses and all of that brought into it. So I love that term. And it actually um, kind of is on the same line because one thing that we are hearing people of color express, especially um, a lot is that when they are looking at leadership um, and they see people of color, um, it tends to be in like administrative roles. So like in HR or in DEI. Um, so I would love to hear, you know, why you think this is the case um, and how companies can maybe go about changing this perspective. Mm -hmm. I would even say, I mean, even stepping back from that, not even looking at, you know, HR or DEI, it's, you know, when we when we look at leadership roles. So there's a point where I'm just going to say that, you know, you don't see as much diversity, right? So I'd say kind of, you know, middle middle level leadership. Um, and then obviously, you know, in many organizations, it drops off at that senior level leadership. And so it's really about one, you know, you'll hear so many organizations focusing on how do we diversify, you know, our leadership pipeline. And so I'm, I'm going to, you know, kind of go off to a tangent here because this is something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and we'll circle back to this. If you really want to ensure that we are diversifying leader, you know, diversifying that 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 pipeline to to really make sure that we've got a diverse leadership group, most organizations what they're doing, and which I actually consider to be a band-aid, is come, you know, come create a leadership development program and and you know have our diverse professionals, um, you know participate in this. And, you know, coming from a leadership development background myself, I think these programs are wonderful for everybody. You know, can everyone benefit from a leadership development experience? Absolutely. But these are band-aid solutions because are these individuals really lacking in something? Well, no, of course not. What they're lacking in is not in leadership skill. What they're lacking in is actually most of the time it's network. And so anytime that we are looking at diversifying you know, our, our, our leadership pool, it's really about making sure that, you know, one, sure, we'll put, you know, there's a leadership experience, like I said, can benefit everyone, but two, there's got to be a sponsorship component. So what are we doing to help people build relationships with one another to really be able to, um, you know, kind of just, just have that experience, get to know each other, understand each other's lived experiences. What are you about? How can I actually advocate for you? So not just mentor you and guide you through how to handle situations, but how am I going to be your sponsor and how do I speak up for you in the rooms that you're not in, you know, with the people that you're you're not in in conversation with, and so I think that you know step step one is a leadership experience. Step two is the um, sponsorship program. This is all happening simultaneously. And step three, the really important one that that a lot of people don't actually touch, it's how are we actually helping leaders who have that decision-making power, whether it's to promote or to hire? If there's similarity bias that's creeping in, if we're actually promoting or hiring people who, again, look like us, think like us, um, act like us, all we're gonna do is have a homogenous group. So if we don't tackle that number three, like I said, do all three at the same time, but we've gotta tackle that number three, that's how we're actually going to make a difference in all of this. So not just specific to you know the, the types of roles, but, but everywhere. And, and the other piece of it is when you think about sponsorship, if there aren't enough ethnically, racially diverse individuals at these senior leadership levels. So who are we building, you know, who are we actually having um, come and sponsor? So really it's about the, all of leadership looking at 
you know, my, their own actions, right? So is there a way that bias creeps in? And it's not, it, there's no judgment, there's no blame, there's no shame. It's really looking at where are we and where do we actually want to, to move as an organization? How do we actually bring in that, you know, diversity of thought? How do we actually bring in that innovation? And obviously we've got plenty of people. It's not a pipeline problem ever, right? We've got plenty of people. It's really about building those relationships and, and seeing the value that people bring to be able to, to move them into, in, into higher level roles. I love that. I love that. I mean, especially what resonated with me is basically holding people accountable to be authentic and genuine and bringing that to the conversation. Uh, with that uh, being said, how do you push back against companies that want to soften the DEI approach and kind of uh, shy away from really having those difficult conversations? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that in this conversation that came up for me is um, you look at the organizations who any DEI goals that the organization has, if you are tying that to compensation and, and you know, performance reviews, you start to see a very quick shift. Unfortunately, it shouldn't come to that, but in, in, in organizations that do that, you, you are seeing that shift. So very, you know, I'm a big believer, obviously, within DEI of it's calling people in, we've got to, you know, bring people along the journey into the conversation. And so, you know, many of you may have, you know, heard about, you know, you're calling out the behavior, but you're calling in the person. So you're still addressing the behavior, but how are we inviting people in? So I want to share an experience of um, a couple, you know, like a while back, we had this, um, I, we had a program that was specifically to diversify um, the, the pipeline as far as leadership roles. And so what we did was we created a program for um, ethnically, racially diverse professionals and women. So flip that a little bit, right? So who, who's not part of these programs? It's because there's an over-representation of white males. And so there was a program that was created specifically for everyone else who doesn't fit into that category. And I spoke with a leader who very openly, candidly shared, you know, I'm, I'm having, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because does that mean that, you know, um, that, that I'm not being valued, that, you know, resources aren't going to be poured into me. And, and I so appreciate him sharing that because I think anytime you create psychologically safe spaces for people to have these open types of conversations, because if you're not having it and you're bottling it up, it's going to come out in different ways. And so really creating safe spaces to, to have these types of conversations, because very quickly, this person understood kind of what the rationale for the program was, what the impact is, you know, would be um, as we move through this program. And then, and then he approached me three weeks later and said, you know what, I really want to show up as a better ally. And so can we talk about how I do that. And so there's many examples of how he already was doing it. But if we didn't provide that psychologically safe space for him to have that conversation, who knows where that would have gone. So it's in, you know, it's not, it's not putting any shame and blame or judging anyone, because when you do that, you shut the conversation down. So when you open that up, people can say, here's, here's what I'm really feeling. I have executive coaching engagements where, um, you know, I, I've had senior level executives come to me and say, you know what, here's something I really struggle with. Um, you know, I'm understanding different dimensions of identity and diversity. And so maybe there's a specific group that I just maybe not feel so comfortable with because I don't know enough. And where else can they have those conversations? Because if they're not, they're not having it with me or they're not having it with other people and you're internalizing it and you just get stuck because where a specific executive I'm thinking of came to me, he just said, you know, 
I'm, I feel like I'm bleeped if I do and I'm bleeped if I don't, like he just felt very stuck. So let's create more of those spaces for people to actually share what's happening and then leverage that to move forward. So that way, again, it takes all of us. It doesn't take some of us to really create that culture. I love that. Um, and it's difficult because you have um, a leadership who maybe is shying away from those conversations because of that discomfort feeling. And then maybe it, it's just not ingrained within their corporate culture in itself to really open the, this type of dialogue with their employees. And uh, that's a whole nother beast to tackle. Um, what advice do you have in that situation? Space and grace times three um, is, is what, I, what I call this. It's my fancy term, <laughs> but space and grace for yourself. I've been in this in, in, in DEI for quite some time. I will fumble. I will make mistakes and it's okay. So I'm giving myself space and grace because this is a learning journey for all. There is no destination. Second space and grace is really of when, you know, when you're in an interaction. So we talked about there's um, the individual, the interpersonal, the team and the organizational level. So how do you actually ask for space and grace from that person in that, that you know, interpersonal um, um, space? So as, as, you know, if you and I are speaking, how, how am I asking for space and grace for you or from you so that way, you know, if I say something, if I do something, we're actually sitting down and really trying to understand, you know, where I'm coming from, what's the impact of what I'm saying, but that space and grace for myself, the space and grace that I'd be asking for from, you know, someone else, those are the two are easy, the two easier ones, I would say to actually do. The third one is the most challenging. And when I've spoken to audiences, there is a little bit of a pause before they actually realize, okay, this is one of the most key important ones. The space and grace number three is if someone gives you feedback, how do you take, um, you know, take their feedback in the most constructive way, regardless of how they package it? Because what I hear, especially when it comes to DEI, so I'm talking about microaggressions or anything else that, you know, that, that just, you know, that doesn't, um, land well, that marginalizes experiences, et cetera, if someone is sharing that type of information, how do you actually take the constructive piece of that content? It doesn't matter how it's packaged because I've had a lot of leaders actually tell me, well, I wasn't ready for the feedback or it just wasn't, you know, presented in the best way that, you know, that, that I would have appreciated. How do you set that aside and how do you take what they've said and then what do you actually do about it? And so I think this is the harder piece, but as we practice, um, all of this is practice. It's not about perfection. How do we make progress? It's just about practicing. So how do we practice giving ourselves space and grace, asking for space and grace from others, and then giving space and grace to others when something may not land with you well, and that's your personal stuff that's going on. So let's set that aside and then actually take the constructive piece and then change our behavior, right? And have those conversations because if we're not having the conversations, we're not building the relationships, we're not building the trust. But the more that people people engage in this practice, you're going to see a shift in culture because then you can come to me and give me feedback and I'm able to actually receive it. Feedback for a lot of people, they take it very personally of who they are. So it's about taking in feedback and not taking on. It's not a judgment of who you are. I'm giving you feedback about behavior. It's just data. It's, it's, it's you know, 
what experience that I had in this specific period. I'm not giving you feedback specific to, you know, I'm not saying you're a racist or you're a this or you're a that. I'm saying in this experience, this is what you shared and this is how it, it landed on me. This is how, you know, it made me feel. This is what the impact of it is on the team, et cetera. So it's really, again, removing that shame and blame when we practice this, 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 um, this way of communicating and giving people space and grace. I know I love that. And actually, Anam and I were on the same page because I was thinking in my head, like, you know, how do you um, approach this work? Because it can just be so um, it's just it can be a difficult conversation to have. And so um, I love that space and grace. And and um, I think that that's going to be um, very, very pivotal for a lot for a lot of people to those the space and grace times three, those three things that you just outlined for us. Um, so we're going to shift just a little bit now um, and kind of talk more about, you know, the role of a chief diversity officer. Um, and so my question is just, I want to kind of discuss like the well-being of, you know, chief diversity officers. Um, I know that it, you had mentioned in a previous conversation that the average tenure for this role is about one year. Um, so can we talk about that? Why are they leaving? What is what is not connecting and how we can better support this this role? Oh, yeah, this is a big, juicy conversation. So I'd say years ago, you'd see averages being around, I mean, you know, five-ish years, you know, and then three years. And so the one year is more, I'm going to say anecdotally, um, but you are seeing a shift where I mean, if you think about it, um, post George Floyd, the number of DEI positions and organizations, I mean, just skyrocketed. And the culture and the system of the organization hadn't changed. So you're asking someone to come in and you know solve all sorts of things, or in some organizations, it was more of a checklist of, you know what, we've hired someone, so we're good. Um, you know, and, and so really looking at the number of people that have come in into organizations that really doesn't have the infrastructure to support because people haven't had conversations of, you know, what is our commitment to DEI? Not, not the, you know, not, not what's on the website, right? But internally, what's the actual commitment? What are the resources that we're actually putting, you know, um, into this position? So I'm talking about having having a team, having financial resources to um, whether it's to hire consultants to, um, you know, to be able to offer learning development experiences, just really be able to support this person A through Z, just the same way that any other chief, um, you know, chief X, you know, person is actually supported as well. And so there, there's a shift um, or there's a difference, I should say, of, of how the other chief positions are, you know, are, are funded, how they're actually supported. So how do we actually bring this chief diversity author, the CDO position at, at an equal level to everyone else? So one is obviously what the organization does to support, but then two, it's also what the individual does to really support themselves too. And I mean, this this is, people come in to these roles because it is a calling. Um, it, it's not, it's not, they're not coming in because it's a nine to five job. They, you know, most of the time it's very much personal lived experience, passion, and really wanting to be able to make a difference. And for most people it's to, so other people won't have the experiences that I've had. And so it's, it's very personal coming into this role. So 
the biggest piece I'd say is, is self-care and resilience. You know, what are you doing to really take time to disconnect from, as a chief diversity officer, from, you know, all of the demands um, that are on your plate to really ensure that you're, you know, you're taking care of yourself. How do you actually look at resilience? How do you, how are you able to, you know, kind of bounce back from just a lot of stress, especially in the last, you know, last few years, even with the pandemic, there's oh so many changes in everyone's lives and it's all compounding on top of each other. So what I'm saying is, you know, is, is self-care what are those practices that you do for yourself to disconnect and really be able to kind of reset, re-energize? Second one I'd say is community. Who are you connecting with that understands what you're going through that you don't have to explain it? So typically this isn't happening within organizations, it's happening outside of organizations that, you know, there's peer groups that come together, you know, completely confidential where, you know, um, so you can come in and, and say what you need to say to really be able to support each other and, and, and kind of work through, here's where our organizations are. So how do we navigate that? So that support system is, is very significant. And then third, I'd say internally within the organization, again, who's that mentor, who's that sponsor, who's there to really be able to advocate your needs, but we also need to know what our needs are um, so we know what we're asking for. So I think these are just three of many things that, that can be helpful, but organizations have to do something different because if you think about, again, the number of positions that have opened up in the last two years, and then on top of it, you know, the people that are hiring for them. If you haven't had this role in the organization, do you really know what you're looking for? Or, you know, or are your biases of what this, you know, this position and this person should look like creeping into um, making those selection decisions? And so, um, I, I won't quote the name of the hospital system. I'll just say it's a hospital system and it was in the news quite a while ago. And so it's really, you know, it was really just, it was really sad, I think, to see that this person was hired for the role and then the offer was rescinded because, um, and, and the comment was something around the lines of, you know, um, you know, basically he, he was too passionate for this role. Like, you know, that, and, and, you know, when you think about, and even just, you know, talking to different organizations of how they're actually looking for CDOs, one person told me that they're not looking for an activist. It's like, I hear all of these comments, right? We want someone who's passionate, but not on the activist, you know, kind of uh, side of this. And so it's, what are you truly looking for? Are you ready for someone to come in and kind of, you know, look under the hood and see the pieces and actually share what they're finding? Are you actually looking for someone to come in and just kind of give you a seal of approval and, and have business kind of, you know, go as usual. So I think a big piece of is, is organizations really looking at, you know, what's their commitment to DEI? What is it that they really want to achieve and how are they actually going to support this person? Which I think the flip side of this is as people look into these roles, you've got to be asking the right questions to really see what that commitment is from the organization. Um, you know, and if that commitment's not there, I would definitely think twice to, to, to see if, you know, because you're going in there and you're providing so much to shift an organization and there is an emotional labor tax component to this right um, and you don't want to be re-traumatized you don't want to it's it's a hard job it's a rewarding job and you want to make sure that the organization is moving in the direction and is aligned with where you're at as well i got so much goodness in that anu i appreciate <laughs> all of that i mean it's just it's very very real and i think the biggest thing is organizations stepping back and making sure they have the infrastructure the resources the the you know to to support bringing in this role i think 
again, you think that this person's going to come in and kind of almost be that culture carrier that you were talking about before. Like, you're going to tell us what to do. You're going to outline everything. Um, and that's not really the case. And, and you just kind of brought up at the end, but I'd like you to expound upon a little bit. What should individuals who are looking, you know, their dream is to be a chief diversity officer. They have been, their whole career trajectory has been to lead them to this place. How do they know, yes, this is the right organization for me. I will be successful here. Like, what should they be looking for? Words are good. Actions speak louder than words. <laughs> so, you know, I, the first thing I would look at is, is what's already been done. Right. Um, and, and what's the impact of it? And again, there, there's no judgment of kind of how things have landed, because even if people are just starting out in their DEI journey, fantastic, you're taking the right steps. But it's really about making sure that, um, you know, walking into an organization, do you actually have to gain buy in for DEI or is it already there? Um, and I think that that's a huge one. Um, you know, most people aren't going to want to go in um, and, and try to convince an organization. It's, you know, where are you and how is DEI tied into organizational values? Because if DEI is over here and your organizational values are here and they're not connected, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of, you know, one of the many initiatives that we have going on the side that people just don't pay attention to. So really it's, it's pulling in DEI. How do we embed that into the entire organization? What does that support? Who is the role reporting to, you know, is this a, is this a, executive level role. Um, I have seen a variety of roles from pr uh, program manager all the way up to CDO. And, you know, if you have someone, a program manager, probably four to five levels down from a CHRO, but you're wanting this person to shift the entire culture and there's no other resources available, do, do you, are you really committed to DEI? You know, it's so, I think it's just, it's, it's asking the right questions of what's been done you know, what, what, what are the, um, you know, so what initiatives, you know, what are the shifts that are happening? How is DEI already embedded into other parts of the organization? It can't just lie within HR. Um, I would look at, you know, what, what commitments have been made? What are the resources that have been put forward? So how much is the organization financially um, allocating to DEI for the entire organization you know, to, to move forward? So again, not just learning experiences, but when it comes to talent acquisition, when it comes to a variety of things, how do we actually ensure that DEI resources are there? And for the CDO, what does that team look like? One person cannot shift the entire culture. And so, and, you know, and how is DEI looked at as well? well. So is it something that everybody's responsible for? Or is it just that this role is coming in and expected to, to carry that weight on their shoulders? If, if that's the case, it's not going to work. It's, it's too heavy for one person. And we're talking about organizational change. Um, and, you know, we're not one person is not going to be able to shift an organization. It's the organization shifting the entire organization. Love that, Anu. And <clears throat> I just want to take a moment and provide a stat. According to LinkedIn data, the number of people with the title CDO jumped 104% in the last five years. And the number of people with the chief diversity officer title increased 68% in that same period. Um, and I want to touch a little bit on what you said earlier, uh, as far as where does the CDO position really belong? And much research today will argue that the CDO should be in the C-suite to properly affect that change. How important it is for a CDO to have access to the CEO and C-level executives to be successful in their role. 
hundred percent. It has to be at the C level. It has to be part of the executive team, and ideally, this you know the CDO role would report to the CEO. Many CDO positions report into a chief people officer or a chief human resources officer. Where that does work is when DEI is separated from HR. So HR, an organization is, you know, is looking to kind of, you know, if you HR is really about protecting the organization, right? You want it to be about protecting the people as well. And so when it comes to DEI, it's got to be separate than HR. So it can still succeed if it reports to, you know, a chief people officer or a CHRO, but ideally you're reporting to the CEO. You've got to have that interaction and it's, a, it's about helping other people embed DEI into everything. And so it's the entire executive team's responsibility, not, you know, not just the CDOs to look at where, you know, what are our, what's our commitment to DEI? What are our goals? How do we ensure that in everything that we're doing, it's embedded. So all of the areas that go underneath that C-level individual, that executive, how are they actually ensuring that DEI is embedded there? So a really um, cool organization. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to them, and I haven't actually, you know, uh, said that I was going to do this, but I spoke with the Dell Foundation several months back, and so they had said that, you know, we're really looking for someone eventually to, to step into a DEI role, but then we wanted to actually make sure that it was not a, an executive level role, and I said, well, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And what was really interesting is the response I got back is it's because it's not that person's responsibility, it's every single one of our responsibilities. And I thought, wow, this is an organization that really gets it, so they've been doing their work and they've, you know, and, and their approach, which, you know, is a little bit different than other organizations, but their why is amazing. It's because it is everyone's responsibility. So, you know, you could be, um, you know, if, if you have an, you know, an in-person office right now and it's a person who um, is, is at the, you know, is at the, you know, lobby, right? Like the receptionist, you know, that person is responsible for creating an inclusive work environment up to the CEO is responsible for creating an inclusive work environment. So how do we all get together to create this? And again, not just place it on, on one person's um, shoulders because it, it's too heavy and it's it's not effective. So to your question, I think definitely C-level reporting to um, CEO, ideally, if not, you've got to be able to be in those meetings because you never know when you when you need more of that um, that in inclusive mindset um, and inclusive lens to, to applying it to whatever challenges that the organization is facing. So again, it shouldn't be the CD, only the CDO, but everybody should be doing that. But having that CDO's presence is helping people be more, um, be more inclusive, applying that inclusive lens to business challenges. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, that was a really, really good question. and. Um, uh, I enjoyed hearing that response. We do have a couple of questions in the chat. Um, I want to give some opportunity um, for these um, individuals to unmute. Um, the first I saw was Vicki. Vicki, do you want to unmute and ask your question or would you like for us to just read it um, aloud? Sure, I, I, can, um, I can ask the question. I think I threw a lot in there too. <laughs> so yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a very inspiring conversation. Uh, so first part of the question is for Anu, how do you identify and support incremental change? And, and I, you know, obviously already people are aspiring for transformational change. So it makes me wonder, is that even within the realm of possibility? Is it, and how do you recognize when incremental change is good, like slow and steady, uh, or, you know, two steps forward, one step back, like, what are your thoughts in regards to that? 
That, that's a great question. I think with people, uh, for, for DEI, people want change like this. <laughs> um, and, and that's not how this works. So it's really about identifying what are those short-term wins that we want? What are those you know, longer-term goals that we have to? How are we actually assessing progress? And how are we doing it often? And then where do we need to pivot to make sure that, that it's at, we're actually moving forward? So it's interesting because I think about... Um, you're talking about, you know, it's incremental change. It's also long-term impacts. What's what's sustainable too? So if we're three years out, five years out, I mean, I think slow and steady, you know, wins the race. And there's also some really quick wins that we can we can actually, you know, take take part of right now. And I think back to um, this is a journey. It's there's there is no destination, and you start peeling the layers, and you hear and see all sorts of things. And you know, there was a, a client recently that I was speaking to, and we were really focusing on um, just just the recruiting process. And as we started to peel back the layers, one of the things that we realized was that this organization, for whatever reason, they were actually taking a week longer to respond to to women applicants, and we wouldn't have known until we started peeling all the layers. So there's a quick fix for that because that's measurable and I can see that. So when it's when it's things that we can measure that's clear, so diversity, it's representation, you either have it or you don't, that's easy to measure. When you're talking about a sense of belonging and that that feeling of inclusion, that's going to be a little bit more challenging to actually measure because if you think about what we're measuring, if you have an organization that um, is, let's just say, you know, mostly white, right? So there's, it's, a, it's a more of a homogenous population. So you're actually having the majority, the overrepresented uh, population of an organization share, and they may be feeling that they feel very included and that, that they belong. So how are you actually looking at what those marginalized experiences are to really understand what's happening in the organization and how we support? So Definitely, I mean, so to your question about incremental change and there's long term, but I think it's also looking at how are we measuring things. And so if we're just using that survey to understand what the experience of inclusion or a sense of that belonging is, I don't think you're getting to the real heart of that experience. So what are you doing, whether it's focus groups or interviews to really understand where are we and then decide where is it that we need to go so we know what kind of initiatives, what kind of actions that we need to take to move forward. Thank you so much. Can I just add, I had a second part to the question too. Yeah. Um, again, kind of along the lines of incremental, um, when do you know when it's time to leave the party? Because uh, it, <laughs> it might not always be obvious because it is you know, sustained work. Um, and sometimes it's more obvious when, when maybe the commitment's not there, but do you have like a guidance as to you know, when it's time to move on and, 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 and maybe help some other organization? Absolutely. I think it's having a very open conversation of, you know, here are the challenges that I see. Here's the challenges that we've experienced. Here's what's been put forth. Here's been the response. So, you know, I really want to understand what that commitment to action is. Um, I consulted with an organization years and years ago where, um, you know, brought all the key players together to create a foundational DEI strategy. It took one year and I was very frustrated, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, because again, is it, is the organization ready 
are they actually able to, to take action or are they still in the conversational phase? And, and everybody, they, they get delight from, you know, um, from, from doing different pieces, right? So of, of this DEI journey. So maybe some people would be a little bit more patient than I am and really support that organization and create that in a year. But I'm someone who's very much, I, there's a, you know, I have a bias to action. So I want to move forward. I want to do things. And so I need to make sure that in an organization, there it's, it's aligned to, to what I want to do. So when it, you know, an organization's actions as well as your values are not aligned and when I not on paper, right? But actually what what's what's taking place. And I think sometimes you do have to make a decision to to move on. And there are organizations who take it very, very seriously seriously and you know their their actions are actually matching their words and so um you know find the right fit i think the biggest thing we've all learned especially in in the last two years with COVID, life is short you never know what's going to happen tomorrow so what's the impact that you want to make and then be in the right space with the right people who also want to make that impact because that is going to actually speed up everything that you want to do being with the right people and being in the right place thank you that's great Thank you, Vicki, for that question. We also have another great question from Kwabana Collins, uh, Marcus Collins. Do you want to unmute yourself? Sure. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, so my actually kind of had two along the same vein. So what are your thoughts around um, organizations practice of just promoting the highest ranking or one of the high ranking black and brown people to a CDO role. And more, more in regards to the effectiveness, because um, I think, honestly, I think a lot of times those CEOs who make those promotions think they're doing a good job and that's a good thing. Um, my, so my question to you is how effective do you, have you seen that to happen? And particularly those who don't have any background in the field of DNI? And then a follow-up question that is similar is, um, what are your thoughts on when, in particular, to when a position is first created as a CDO or a DNI leader, external versus internal hires? Mm, yeah, great, great questions. So what you shared absolutely happens all the time. We've got someone in-house, and we're just going to promote them and move them up. So the benefit of this is this person has relationships, right? They, they've got that relationship, social capital within the organization to help influence, thing, influence things. But on the flip side is if you don't have that expertise and you don't necessarily know what you're doing, so how do you actually bring that in then? Are you actually working with the consultant? Are you actually creating a team that has the experience in the areas that you don't have? So if you're doing that, you're setting yourself up for success. You're setting the organization up for success if, if you're in that role. Um, so, so it can work. It's just making sure that you're, you're bringing in the right people because the piece of this is it's having the expertise in DEI, but you've got to be able to influence people to really be able to move this stuff forward. And so it can, you know, it, it absolutely happens all the time. And that's how people are making it work. Ideally, you're actually bringing in someone who's got that expertise, right? Because it's not just, it's not just strategy development. You really got to be able to see what's landing and how it's landing and what do you need to do to pivot if it's not and so really having someone with that expertise i think is, is crucial and the internal and external hire again i mean i think it's 
if you're promoting someone internally, they're going to understand the culture. So maybe they've also got that social relationship capital, but it's really at the end of the day for this to work in the best way. How are you bringing in someone who's got the expertise, who can move you forward, who understands the culture and isn't coming in just because you want them to be a culture fit, but it's coming in to be a culture ad because we want to continue to diversify the way that the organization thinks and acts and really be able to, to pull people together. So there are some crucial pieces of it's not just having the DEI expertise, but, it, but the person's got to know how, do, how am I able to really bring people together, my communication relationship skills to really be able to influence. So I think it's, it's a combination of those. Thank you. And just, just a thought um, in regards to when people have been with an organization for a long time. So when we're thinking about internal hires, they've drunk the juice oftentimes. And so they miss, they're missing the perspective of the underrepresented, especially if you're having somebody who's already in more of an elite role, they may have lost the common touch. And so um, I just, I, I just want to put that out yeah. there and see if you've seen that in, in your consultations and things like that and how that has been addressed um, to help the organization move forward. I've, I've seen it both ways when you hire, you know, when you move someone internally. So you're right, there are individuals who, you know, who, who they drank the Kool-Aid, right? So they, they're looking through like these glasses of everything is, you know, rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. And so it's really making sure that if you're in this role, you're really understanding the experiences of everyone and, and not just coming in through your experiences of the organization. On the flip side, if you're, you know, if you're an internal, you know, promotee, you're, you also, you know, there's many people who also understand, okay, well, I know what my experiences have been like, and we've made some progress in certain areas and some that we haven't. So, you know, there are, there are individuals who have come up in the organization who are able to speak to, um, you know, their own lived experiences and other people's lived experiences. So I don't think it's, you know, it's not one or the other, but it's really ensuring that you've got someone, um, regardless of their internal or external, not just looking through the, the culture through their own eyes, but really making sure that, I mean, my, my role, so I've been the head of DEI for quite some time and I've had various DEI roles. I've always gone in and listened and asked questions and that's how I learned. I don't come in with a cookie cutter, here's the strategy, here's what we need to do. So you've got to understand what's happening at, in, within the organization. And not just in the beginning, but continuously. So how are you checking in, you know, every every couple of months or however, whatever that cadence might look like to really understand how people are feeling? And what, what's the impact of, of what it is that we're doing as well? Thank you. Thank you. And before we jump to our next question here, I actually have a question for you, um, Anu, a little bit on what we were currently speaking on. Um, a lot of organizational change is constant and reflective of socioeconomic environments that we all live in. So how can a CDO best manage the burden of often feeling like they need to have all the answers, but also give themselves grace to not exactly have all the answers? So it kind of piggybacks on what you were just touching on. There is no one that's going to have every single answer, um, you know, because I think any time I've ever facilitated any type of session, I, I talk about how I'm still learning and growing, and it actually surprises people. And this has, if, if you're not viewing DEI as that, I mean, we have 
we are all on a journey. There's going to be new terms, new experiences, whatever it might be that we all consistently, constantly have to learn. If you are stagnant, so someone told me this a long time ago, just in general, but if you're stagnant, you're sinking, right? We don't want to drown. So it, it's always, it's an ever evolving journey. And it's really making sure that we are, you know, paying attention to what people are needing and how are we bringing people along on this journey. So I think you actually just said it, right? We want to be learning and growing. We want to give ourselves space and grace, and we can't ever answer every single question or, you know, be able to provide that answer. But I, I think it's really about reflecting back to people, you know, well, what do you think, right? Again, it's not just my responsibility as a chief diversity officer, but what are your thoughts? What do you think that we should do? How can, you know, what, what are you thinking that we can do to really engage other people uh, you know, within the organization? What do you think our next steps are? Because it can't just be, again, placed on one person's shoulder. So it should really be all of us thinking about what do we as culture co-creators need to do to create the culture that we want for everyone in the organization. So much new. This conversation has been so rich. We even have um, one of our uh, podcast attendees asking, is there a book in the works? You know, I mean, a lot of people are really <laughs> appreciating this conversation. And I do want to highlight, we have one more question before we'll probably need to um, be respectful of time to wrap up at the top of the hour. But um, Sharnice, do you want to unmute and ask your question? If Hi, not, can I'm you all hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Sorry, I'm on my cell phone. Um, yeah, this has been super helpful. And I know earlier we mentioned, um, or you mentioned that um, a budget and people resources are critical. However, let's say there's new organizations or organizations with less of a budget, how do you navigate, like continuing to advocate the need for an increased budget as well as team members without coming off as like being a nuisance or just being redundant or repetitive? If I get a no, then the conversation is, okay, so when are we revisiting this conversation? <laughs> and, and really getting that response from the other person. So that way, you know, it's, it's, it's expected that in three months, let's actually circle back and have the conversation again. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's many um, CDOs that I know, even in large organizations where it is, it is, you know, one person and that's it. So they are the leader, they are the individual contributor. And I think it's, it's figuring out also who, are, who is it that you're partnering with in various areas? So who in, you know, talent acquisition or talent attraction, um, who within, you know, learning and development. So who are our partners? And so also having them make the case for it too. So it's not just coming from one person, it's actually coming from people. Um, and then, you know, if it's, if it, you know, I don't take no as a no, I think it is a not now. And so, um, you know, it's great. You know, this is kind of where we are. I'm hearing what you're saying. And so when would be a great time to, uh, you know, circle back and have this conversation and revisit it? That's perfect. I love that. And, and um, I think I would like to just ask one more question anew, just because it's something that I think um, is just would be very helpful because we, we talked a lot about self-care. We've talked a lot about having that network, finding your tribe, but how do you identify those that those those people, like the, the people that you want to be connected to? I mean, are you are you sourcing them on the, you know, through your LinkedIn connections or are these people that are, you know, in similar roles? Like how do people find that group? Because I feel like that can be sometimes a challenge, just making sure that you're, if it's not directly in front of you, aligning with people who are going to really create that community that you're searching for. And that is so important um, in this space. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there are professional networks that I've joined. So these are just general professional networks. And so then you actually look at who's in who's in this area of, of DEI. And then I've, I've started to connect that way. I've connected to people on LinkedIn. And then, you know, always just asking people too. So, you know, here's what I'm looking for. So being really clear what you want. Is it support? Is it accountability? Is it, you know, having someone, you know, kind of to challenge your ideas a bit to get you thinking in a different way. So if you know what you need, and then asking people, who else do I need to go and meet? And so, and, you know, you don't need 50 people or 100 people. If you have, you know, a good two or three people, I think that support is just, it's it's huge. Um, and, you know, once you start to meet one or two people, they're going to start recommending you to connect with other people. And then I think that's how you, you form your little inner circle of support. And, um, and, and you know, it's, it's actually a smaller group than people think. Um, and I, like I said, we're, we come into this because it's a calling. So when you find people who are similar minded, who have you know similar values, um, and and want to make the same change in the world, it's 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 a very quick connection, and people are happy to help and support. Great, love that. Thank you, Anu. <clears throat> We're getting close to the top of the hour, and to be respectful of time, as Courtney mentioned. Uh, what are some, we totally enjoyed having you as our guest co-host. This has been such an enriching and wonderful conversation. Um, what closing remarks do you have for us today? Always be kind <laughs> to, to yourself. Um, this, this is a journey on oh so many levels. And I always just go back to, I think, practice. Um, you know, anything that we're doing, it's practicing. And so it's not about being perfect. It's not about getting it, you know, perfectly set or perfectly done. It's just, you know, practice, practice creates progress. And one of my most, um, I'm going to, I'm actually going to, you know, leave this with a quote and it's one of my favorite quotes because it helps ground me and I'm going to read it because it's on my wall. Um, it's your present circumstances don't determine where you can go. They merely determine where you start. So I'm coming in today with here's where I'm starting and here's actually, you know, where I want to go. And I'm not thinking about what didn't work yesterday or what didn't go well. And I think we need to all find ways to really ground ourselves because this takes a lot of energy. And I appreciate every single one of you on this call and for all the work that we're doing. Love it. Thank you so much, Anu. And thank you all our audience for joining us today on this episode of Intentional Conversations. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend.